0: This is Ideas from Aspen from American Public Media. I'm Kai Rizdahl. We're featuring highlights from the Aspen Ideas Festival. This hour, the pursuit of happiness. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, liberty. And the pursuit of happiness arguably one of the most inspiring sentences in history one that has defined america since it appeared in the declaration of independence but just because we all have a right to pursue what makes us happy doesn't mean we're very good at it later this hour harvard psychologist dan gilbert explains why we so often guess wrong about what's going to make us happy but first we dig into the history of that famous phrase and the declaration of independence with david rubinstein Rubenstein is co-founder and managing director of the Carlyle Group, one of the world's largest private equity firms. He also owns one of the surviving 17 copies of the Magna Carta and a rare copy of the Declaration of Independence. Rubenstein says at the time the Declaration was written, the sentence that has now become part of the bedrock of American ideals wasn't the central idea. The document was primarily meant to explain why the colonies were freeing themselves from Britain. In a speech at this summer's Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado, Rubenstein took a closer look at several documents that have defined personal freedom.
1: The Declaration of Independence text is very interesting. When it was agreed to, most people did not think it was that significant. The text was something that uh, was, was worked out. It was written by Thomas Jefferson, mostly, uh, but it was it changed dramatically in Congress, and Congress actually changed about 25% or deleted about 25% of what he wrote, and most of their effort was to figure out what we should say about why we're freeing ourselves from from Britain. It wasn't about uh, the thing that has become so famous in the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence uh, mostly is about what King George did wrong. That's what the delegates spent most of their time in the Continental Congress debating. Today, nobody cares about that. In fact, nobody even focuses on that. The Declaration of Independence, in fact, for, for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years after it was signed uh, was something that was not that significant in terms of uh, people in America taking that much t- time on it or paying that much attention to it because they'd already won the war and they didn't care about why King George was, uh, had done things wrong. But it was a little bit of uh, a preamble that became so famous. And that preamble now be- has become, one sentence of it, become one of the most famous sentences in the, in the history of the English language. And it's one that everybody... Remembers, and it's really become a symbol of our country. And some people say it's poetry. Some people say it's it's really what our country's all about. And it, it it basically is this: we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is, in the view of many people, the embodiment of what America is all about. Now, ironically, Lincoln. I mean, Lincoln thought that that was the spirit of the whole country, and he later used that as the justification for the Emancipation Proclamation and other things. But when Jefferson wrote that, it was ironic when he wrote that, that all men are created equal. Um, In fact, he didn't really believe all men were created equal. Um, As many people know, he owned 60 slaves at the time that he wrote the Declaration of Independence. He had four slaves with him up in Philadelphia when he wrote it. Um, He had written many times earlier that blacks and whites could not live together he thought that maybe slavery was wrong, but he didn't necessarily believe that they could live together if the slaves were freed. Now, many people know when somebody says to you, it's self-evident, that means it's not self-evident. <laughs> when somebody says to you, it's not about the money, it is about the money. Um, and so when it's, and actually, uh, Jefferson didn't actually write it was self-evident. It, he wrote, it is sacred and undeniable it was in the drafting committee that Benjamin Franklin said, well, why do we need three words? We can use one. He said, let's make it, it is self-evident. But it really wasn't self-evident that all men are created equal. Now, how did I get interested in this? Let me just give you a little background and and why I think the Declaration of Independence is so important, even though it's really only one or two sentences in it now that's really relevant. Um, Many times, many people here probably have had things in their lives happen that you didn't expect to happen, and it just went on by serendipity. Something changed in your life because of... Of something that you hadn't anticipated. Uh, One day I was flying back to the United States from somewhere and I was going through papers and I saw that I had been invited to go to a reception in New York and the reception in New York was a reception to promote the sale of the Magna Carta. It turned out that the Magna Carta, uh, a copy of the Magna Carta, was being sold by Sotheby's and somebody who knew me invited me to the reception, and it was fortuitous that I happened to be able to go to New York that night, and with about five minutes to go before the Sotheby's reception was to close, I walked in, I ran into, by by luck, the woman who was in charge of the sale. She explained to me that Ross Perot had bought this document in 1982, Um, it was the only copy in private hands, it had been on display at the archives for uh, a number of years, and he was putting it up for sale to take the proceeds and give it to Iraqi war veterans for their medical treatment. So um, there was no constraint by Ross Perot on what the, document was, what the proceeds, what the, where the document could go, and so it was thought at the time that somebody from Saudi Arabia or Russia or the Far East would buy the only copy in American hands, and the Magna Carta was a document that inspired Thomas Jefferson when he wrote the Declaration of Independence, it inspired uh, Abraham Lincoln when he drafted the Emancipation Proclamation, and I thought it was unfortunate that we'd probably lose the one copy in our country. But never having been to an auction in my life, I didn't really uh, anticipate I'd go to the auction. But then I realized the next day I happened to be in New York. And so I just, that night I decided I was going to buy this uh, and keep it in in our country. And so I went there not really knowing uh, that I was going to win, but hoping that I would. And it turned out that my flight was delayed to get back to to New York the next day. And so with about five minutes to go, I got out of the taxi cab and started running to the Sotheby's auction. I got in there. I saw the same woman. And she said, uh, okay, the auction's going to start in about two minutes. Uh, go into this little room. And I said, well, I want to be where the auction is. I want to be down there, hold my, you know, hand up and all that. She said, no, we don't have time for that. You didn't get registered the right way. Go in this little room. We'll put you on a telephone, and you can bid. So I figured if I argued with her, I would miss the auction. So I, I go in a little room, and, I, again, I'd never been to Sotheby's to buy anything before. Um, and so I uh, pick up a telephone, and they, the guy says, okay, the Magna Carta, let's start. You know, one million, two million. they start. So I kept, you know, I got into the flow of it, and I finally uh, won. I think the bid was around $19 million, and with commission was about $20 million. And I kept bidding and, uh, you know, expecting him to say, another bid, another bid, and he said, sold. I said, uh-oh. <laughs> so I actually bought this thing. So they came up to me and said, okay, who are you? Um, because they said there's about 100 press people out there who want to know who, who bought this thing, and uh, you now you can slip out the side door, nobody will know. I said, no, no, I, I want to say that I want to give it to the American Ar- uh, to the, the archives because I think it's important that we have a copy in, the, in our country. There are only 17 copies in the world. Um, there are fif- 15 of them are, reside in British institutions. They're never going to be sold. Uh, one was sold in 1962 for $10,000 to, uh, to the Australian government, and it's now displayed in the Australian parliament. And then there is this copy, and it's the only one in private hands. And uh, it's now on display at the National Archives. And as I began to uh, talk about it in front of the, the press that day, I uh, realized that it had much more significance than even I had thought. It really had been uh, the basis for much of what was done in the Revolutionary War, the, the idea that, that uh, taxation without representation, many of the key rights in the Magna Carta are really embodied in our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, our, our Declaration of Independence. And so when I left that day, um, I went to a, a dinner party headed by Chuck, uh, hosted by Chuck Prince, who was then the head of Citicorp. And uh, I sat down, I said, I'm sorry, I'm late. I just bought a copy of the Magna Carta. (laughs) And so, uh, actually, when it was in the newspaper the next day, uh, he called me up and said, I I apologize. I thought you were making a joke. I didn't know you actually bought it. Um, Most people probably don't know what the Magna Carta really is. And let me just describe it for a moment. Um, Many of you who all went to school probably heard it's 1215, King John, Runnymede, and that's about all you probably know. Let me describe what actually happened. Um, In those days, in the 1200s, um, England was really uh, part of, England and France were kind of part of the same country, really. And there was a king, King John. And King John was trying to recover some of the land he had lost in France. And he was actually a Frenchman. He had grown up in, in France, but he was then the king of England. And he, to, to finance these wars, he needed money. And so he would keep getting the, the money from the barons. And eventually they got tired of financing these wars. And so they began to revolt. And they took over the city of London. And he recognized that he was in trouble. So he agreed to sit down with about 100 of them at Runnymede, which is outside of London, and he basically agreed to a peace agreement, a settlement, under which he agreed that he would um, give them certain rights. There were 63, char- 63 provisions in the original uh, 2500 word in, written in Latin, Magna Carta, written in, in 1215, and uh, there were 63 provisions, many of which were very bizarre, uh, but they basically gave certain rights to the noblemen. They were um, things like habeas corpus, uh, Right to a jury uh, by uh, uh, by your peers, trial by jury of your peers. Um, if any property was taken, it had to be compensated for. Uh, you couldn't uh, uh, yet punishment had to be proportionate to the crime and so forth, and and also people shouldn't be taxed without being represented. And there were a couple provisions in there which actually said, uh, and if you owe money to Jews, you don't have to pay it. This is hard to believe. Now, actually, um, later they in the subsequent versions of the uh, Magna Carta, um, that was taken out. And I couldn't say, I'm I, I trying to figure myself, why did they, turn, they start to like Jews a little bit better later on? Well, the answer was they kicked all the Jews out of England in, se- in 1270, so I didn't have to worry about that provision later. <laughs> but actually, in 1215, so anyway, King John signs this reluctantly, and then he goes about his way. And then, all of a sudden, he realizes that he's given away too much, because he had basically given away the authority to be king because if had he done certain things, a committee of 25 barons could overrule him. And as a result, uh, the pope, who really then technically overruled or ruled England, uh, said to King John, I'm going to excommunicate you if you agree to this and and you stand by it because if you stand by this, what you've really done is you've said that the highest authority in the land is not God and it's not a deity and it's not the king, it's some nobleman and we can't agree to that. You know, the, the, the church is the highest uh, authority. So King John, two weeks later, said, I, I, I'm walking away from the, from the treaty, from, the, from Magna Carta. So it lasted for about two or three weeks. And then the noblemen revolted, and they had a war. And as, in the middle of the war, King John was crossing a river. He fell over, fell into it, got dysentery eventually, died. So then his son became the king, King Henry. But he was only nine years old. And so the re- noblemen were going to revolt again and take over and throw this king away or, or uh, throw him over. But the, the regents around this young nine-year-old king said, we'll agree to anything you noblemen want. So they agreed to another Magna Carta. It was signed in 1225, and they agreed to do another one in 1226 and so forth. And basically for a number of years, it was, England uh, had peace, and the king kind of ruled. He didn't have all the rights he had before, but there was peace. And then he died, and his son took over, and his son was King Edward III. And when his son took over, he had the same problem that his grandfather had. He needed to recover some of his lands in England and France, and so he began to tax the noblemen for this, and they began to be upset again. And once again, they said, we're not going to pay these taxes. And so while he was in the middle of a war, he agreed to something called the 1297 version of the Magna Carta. And that basically said not only all the things before, except the provision about the Jews, they didn't need that anymore, but it also said, for, for sure, no taxation without representation, and the king could not get money from these noblemen without um, there being represented in any discussions about it. He agreed to that. And uh, the, the novel thing about the 1297 version is that That went on the laws of the books of England. The 1215 version really was ignored and really didn't really have any real long-term impact on England's laws. But the 1297 version was written into the laws of England as an official law of England. And therefore, it had much more historical impact than the 1215 version. The 1297 version is the version that I actually bought. And you might say, well, why are there so few of these versions around? Why, after all these years, are there only 17? Well, this is the answer. Uh, there were 40 counties in England in those days, effectively counties, and every time a Magna Carta was signed 1215, 1225, 1297, each of the counties would get one, so they would know what, was, uh, what were the law of the land was and what had been agreed to, but they were written on parchment, and parchment was animal skin, and r- mice and rats liked to eat animal skin, and over a 700-year period of time, the filing system wasn't so wonderful, and as a result, um, most of them were, were, were decimated. Now... Um, the version that I bought, which was what Ross Perot had earlier bought, had been in one family's possession for 500 years. 500 years they had it. Now, it wasn't clear how they got it, but they did get it. They were a noble family, and they, they were land uh, rich but cash poor. And so to pay taxes in the early 80, 80, 1980s, they had to sell it. They sold it to Ross Perot for about a million and a quarter.
0: David Rubenstein is the co-founder and managing director of the Carlyle Group. He also owns one of the few surviving copies of the Magna Carta, also a rare copy of the Declaration of Independence. He spoke at the summer's Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Now he brings us from the Magna Carta to the Revolutionary War and the creation of the Declaration of Independence.
1: Most people probably don't remember this, but there was no great desire on the part of our country to actually break away from England. Uh, the country, um, you know, basically, we're, we, were in our, we had 13 separate colonies, and each of these colonies dealt directly with England. The colonies didn't deal with each other. The colonies had more relationships with England than they had with each other. In fact, when the first Continental Congress was held, there were 56 people in the Continental Congress. Very few of them had actually ever been to Philadelphia. Uh, John Adams had never been to Philadelphia when he, when he went to the Continental Congress. And uh, more people had been to London than had been to Philadelphia. London was then a city of about 500,000 people. And over a period of time, what, what really led to the Revolutionary War, for people who don't remember their history, is that there was something called the French and Indian War of about seven years, and the, the British spent a lot of time and money winning that war and securing borders for the United States, or for the, the, the colonies, and it cost a lot of money, and they had to keep troops in the United States. So for the first time ever, they decided to impose taxes on the United States. We Before, the colonies hadn't really paid any taxes. They literally... Um, gave benefits to England by commercial trade, and the benefits to England were the trade. It wasn't taxes. So England imposed some taxes. It was generally agreed that it would be not a good idea to keep imposing these taxes, and eventually England uh, relieved a lot of them, but there began to be some hard feeling about other issues, and ultimately the members of the Continental Congress came together to try to figure out how they could get England to leave them alone a bit and let them run the colonies the way they wanted to, and there were some taxes that were about to be imposed again, and an effort was made to keep England from imposing more taxes and doing more things to control uh, the colonies, and ultimately it was agreed that it wasn't likely to work. So the Second Continental Congress... Uh, was basically put together to get ready to declare independence. Now, it wasn't a time where many people thought there was likely to be independence. Most people in the United States were quite happy the way it was. Declaring independence was something most people hadn't really thought would ever happen because these people... In the United States, then, there was about 2.5 million people in the United States, and their relatives were all from England. That's where the, the most, most many people had been educated there. Most of the upper-class people had gone to England for education. Their relatives were there. That's where they did business. So the idea of breaking away wasn't such a common thing, but eventually it was concluded that they couldn't make uh, the parliament agree to the idea that, that the country should have certain rights, and this is where the rub came in. When each of the colonies was set up, they were set up under a charter, and the charter said that you have the same rights as British citizens. Well, those British citizens thought they had the rights of the Magna Carta, certain rights of uh, no uh, taxation without representation and so forth. Well, the parliament was saying, no... You are members of the colonies, and the colonies ignore the charter. You don't have the right as the same citizen. You don't have the rights of the citizens of, of, of England. You don't have those rights. You're just members of the colonies. The colonies said, "We have these charters that say we have the same rights," and that was really the problem. The Parliament didn't really recognize the rights of the colonial uh, citizens, and so the colonies got together. They petitioned the king, saying, "Look, the Parliament only applies to England. You don't really rule us. We are, we're loyal to the king." And the king was King George III. Almost everybody's heard of him by now. Uh, He was thought to be uh, uh, a little unusual. He was actually uh, somebody who ruled 40 years after the the Revolutionary War. He did have some mental problems that were fairly serious, but he wasn't completely out of it. And he basically took the view that he was going to support the parliament and he did not want to get into whether or not the rights of the Magna Carta, the rights of taxation or anything were things to be taken away from Parliament. So he absolved himself from it. And at that point, John Adams, who was leading the revolutionary effort and to declare independence in the Second Second Continental Congress, he got the Congress to pass a resolution which said that each of the states should um, reconstitute themselves, not as um, colonies of England, but have a new uh, charter. And each of the states in May... Was, was importuned by the Second Continental Congress to adopt a new, uh, in effect, formation agreement uh, for their, for their uh, colony to, to uh, put a new government in place. And once that was agreed to by the sec- Second Continental Congress, it was clear that each colony would probably get, begin a new government that wasn't loyal to England, and then probably they would be independents. And then somebody from Virginia, Richard Henry Lee, uh, introduced in early June a resolution that said we should be independent. And that was something that was very novel, and none of the delegates to the Continental Congress had authority to agree to that because they had to get instructions from their local legislatures. And so they adjourned the the Second Continental Congress in early June so everybody could go back and get authority to vote for this uh, resolution by Richard Henry Lee of Virginia. During that period of time, um, it was was thought that probably the resolution would be agreed to, and so they would like to have some kind of declaration that they they could tell the public in England why it was that we were going to... We were going to break away. So they appointed a committee of five people to draft a a declaration. The committee uh, consisted of Robert Livingston of New York, not that well-known, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, not that well-known, and three other people pretty well-known, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was only 33 years old. He was one of the youngest members of the Continental Congress. Uh, The oldest was uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was then 70. And how would you like to be on a committee like that? You know, It's a pretty imposing committee. Well, Thomas Jefferson was picked not because he was a very impressive or well-known figure. He was actually not that well-known. He was a person who was not a very good speaker. In fact, in, in, neither the, in the Second Continental Congress, he never actually said a single word. He never was a person who was comfortable making speeches. And his eight years as president, he never made a single speech. He was a person who was very comfortable writing. He wrote about 20,000 letters in his lifetime, 14,000 of which survive. Um, but he was very comfortable sitting alone, writing, and so... He was given the task of, of being the draftsman. Now, people later said, well, why did not John Adams, who was much more much better known and probably more ardent of a revolutionary figure, why didn't he draft And He said later that he thought that Jefferson was ten times a better writer, that Jefferson wasn't as obnoxious as he was, Adams didn't have as many enemies, and it was better to have somebody from Virginia writing this, not somebody from Massachusetts, because Massachusetts was seen as too much... in favor of independence, and Virginia was seen as maybe not quite as pro-independence. And therefore, um, Jefferson was given the task, and he was given basically 17 days to do it. But during the day, he had to attend the Continental Congress, so he couldn't really write during the day. And at night, he had some other things he was doing, so he really wrote the whole uh, Declaration of Independence in about four days, the latter four days, and he, ha- he had a private room he had rented. He had his slaves. He had four slaves with him who were attending to his needs. He had a little writing desk that he had written, which is now in the Smithsonian. And he basically wrote this, this out without any books. He claimed he never had any single books with him. And he had, didn't have any references to anything. He just kind of did it basically... Um, on, on memory. Now, later people have accused him of not saying anything original in the Declaration of Independence. Not a single thing in there is original. He later said, well, I wasn't deciding to come up with something new. It wasn't my task. I was trying to reflect the American mind. And uh, today, some of what is in there would be called plagiarism. Because if you look at some other documents that were around at that time, particularly uh, 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 something written in the Virginia Constitution by George Mason, it looks as if it's exactly word for word almost what Jefferson wrote. But plagiarism wasn't a concept that really existed in those days. And Jefferson basically said, I I really wasn't trying to, to be original. Well, when he, when he turned in his draft to uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was 70, had gout, really wasn't that involved. He just made a couple changes because he knew that Jefferson was very sensitive to any editing, and he knew that Jefferson was very, uh, very a guy that would be upset if he was edited very much. So he made a couple changes. One I mentioned, uh, Jefferson had written sacred and, and undeniable, and Franklin wrote in uh, self-evident. And then he gave a copy as well to Adams. Adams said he made hardly any changes because he also knew that Jefferson was very temperamental and didn't want to upset him. And so ultimately, a draft was presented back to the, to the Continental Congress, um, um, and they put it on hold until the vote occurred. The vote, w- the, the vote was taken on July 1st. They began a vote on whether to, to declare independence or not, and they didn't have the votes. Nine states voted for it. Three didn't, were, really weren't in favor, of one, one abstained. And so they then had to go out and get the votes, and they basically waited to the next day. And at the end of July the 2nd, they, they had the votes, 13, 12 states in favor of it. One state, New York, abstained, they didn't have the authority. Later, they agreed to it uh, subsequently. And so then on July the 3rd, they took up the Declaration of Independence, the text of it. And um, on the text of it, Jefferson sat there and didn't say a single word. He didn't defend his, his, his writings. Um, he later said that it was mangled. He thought that that roughly 25% of what he had written was destroyed by, or what he would say destroyed, by the Continental Congress, particularly uh, two provisions that he cared very much about. He had a provision in there saying that King George had forced slavery and the slave trades on the states, and that was one of his offenses. But he also said that King George, which was... Not quite true. Many of the the delegates felt it was a little unfair to to blame King George for forcing slavery on the states because it had started a long time before. And Jefferson also said in there that King George had importuned the slaves to revolt. Well, you know, if you were against slavery, why would you be against the slaves revolting? So it was a little inconsistent. But that was taken out. Uh, Georgia didn't want, and South Carolina didn't want any mention of slavery. And there is no mention of slavery in the Declaration of Independence. There's no mention of slavery in the Constitution. Um, There was another provision in there saying that we um, have relationships with people in England. Uh, We're going to have to sever these relationships. And while they've been long personal relationships, (coughs) we should recognize that these people in England who are relatives, they're now our enemies. That was taken out as well. It was so much destroyed in Jefferson's view that Jefferson never acknowledged that he wrote the Declaration of Independence for about 10 years. He was so embarrassed with the way it had been changed. And many of you may have seen something like this happen in your life. He then, while these changes were being made... Uh, and when they were finally made, he then wrote to his best friend saying, here is the version that I wrote. Here's what the, De- the Continental Congress did. Don't you think my version's better? Um, <laughs> but he was very upset. In fact, it wasn't known that he was the main author of it until much later. Ultimately, it was agreed to on the text on the July the 4th. And so then what happened? Well, um, there was a handwritten version that they had agreed to, but what were they going to show people? Well, they went to a printer that night, on the July the 4th, and said that this printer's name was John Dunlap, can you print 200 copies of this text we've just agreed to? And he did. It was called a, broad, it was called a broadside. It was uh, printed in the newspaper. He printed up 200 copies, and they would be distributed around the United States so people would know what was agreed to. It was finally uh, printed up. One copy was sent to George Washington, who read it to the troops on July the 8th. Another copy was sent to, other, um, to England and to their representatives to let them know. Uh, the English, when they finally got it, they wrote, Uh, they hired hired somebody to uh, write a uh, pamphlet saying, well, what are these Americans talking about? How can they say all men are created equal? They have slaves. They pointed out the very fallacy that I mentioned earlier. In any event, there were about 200 of these copies floated around and printed, and about 25 of them now survive in the United States. But what 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 was actually signed? All that was printed by John Dunlop was something on on print. Nothing was signed. Well, they they got a, a person who was a calligrapher, and then around August the 2nd, the delegates uh, to the Continental, Continental Congress came back, and they signed it. Most of them signed it around August the 2nd. Uh, some signed it subsequently. And then that copy, the original, original copy that was signed, is now in the archives. However, um, it was given initially to the State Department uh, to be the uh, holder of it, and the State Department wasn't set up to hold documents in those days. And when the War of 1812 came, they had to rush it out of, out of Washington because it would have been destroyed. Uh, at one point, it was put, put back on the, on the uh, on display in, in Washington in the Patent Bureau for about 40 years right in front of all the sunlight and everything. People could look at it. Well, it faded. And in 1820, John Quincy Adams, the Secretary of State, who then had possession of it, said, it's faded so much we have to preserve it. So he hired a man named William Stone, and he was told to come in and make a copy that we could keep forever, so everybody would know what the original copy looked like. So he got a a kind of wet cloth, and he put it on the original copy, and he took some of the ink off of it over uh, a long process. Unfortunately, a lot of the ink that was on the original copy came off when he was putting this wet cloth on, but the wet cloth produced a version that he could then make into a uh, another copy, there's, uh, r- there were 200 of those printed up, one for each of the living signer of the Declaration, one for each of the states, and so forth, and that's the version that most people are familiar with, but that's actually a copy that was made in 1820 uh, from the original. The original is still in the archives. It's very faded. You can barely see anything in it. There's, there's, I mean, it's so faded because it was on display for such a long time. It was eventually con- uh, given over to the Library of Congress, and then uh, the Library of Congress eventually was forced to give it up to the archives, I think it was, in 1952. Now, many people uh, were ignored the Declaration of Independence. As I said, it wasn't after the war was over, many people didn't pay that much attention to it. The key language uh, that I mentioned earlier, the preamble that many people focused on, that did inspire some people. And the person who was probably the most inspired by that of anybody was a man named Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln grew up in a world where Blacks and whites were not treated equally. And I should say Thomas Jefferson, although he early on thought that men were treated equal, he actually had the same view that, that Lincoln did, that ultimately if slavery was ended, blacks should be forced to leave the country. And this was actually Lincoln's view. Lincoln is known as the great emancipator, but the truth is that Lincoln's view, which was very typical of those, of those times, and it was really the same view that Jefferson had, it was that blacks should be freed and they should be asked to leave the country. In fact, Lincoln, when he was elected to the Congress Rep for, when he served a two-year term, he introduced a bill that said slavery should be ended in the District of Columbia. It should be ended if the citizens of the District of Columbia vote on it. He always believed there should be a vote by people. There should be compensation for the slave owners, and the slaves should be moved to Africa, South America, Central America. And that was his view. Um, he, he did later in life... Um, change his views slightly. But when he became president, he was not intent on freeing the slaves. By a long shot, he was not. Many abolitionists asked to, urged him to do so. He said he, he didn't think that was appropriate because the Constitution of the United States didn't re- allow him to do so. He thought that the Constitution's spirit was a declaration of Independence and the sentence that I, I, I mentioned. In fact, when he gave his famous Gettysburg Address, four score and seven years ago, Uh, Our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. He believed that all men were created equal. He didn't think they could live together in the United States as equals, but he thought all men were equal. So why did he actually free the slaves? Well, he didn't feel he could do that under the Constitution, but under the war, uh, when the war occurred, he felt ultimately the only way to win the war was to have slavery ended because he thought the slaves were helping the South so much in in producing uh, armaments and other things and and in doing all the agricultural work while the soldiers were fighting, that only if slavery ended and the slaves were were left to not support the South's uh, war machine would it be possible to win the war. And so he did a very clever thing. Rather than write an eloquent uh, document like the Gettysburg Address, he um, basically did something very uh, legalistic. He drafted by himself that document, which is the Emancipation Proclamation, And he he showed it to his cabinet, and he explained what he was going to do. He was going to use the War Powers Act that he had as commander-in-chief to say that we're at war with the South, and as the commander-in-chief, I'm going to free certain people who live in the South, and those would be the slaves. Now, many people criticized the Emancipation Proclamation because it didn't free slaves in the North. It didn't free slaves in the uh, border states. it, It only freed states... Uh, Slaves in the southern states, in the parts of the southern states that the North didn't really control. So some people say it only freed really maybe 20,000 slaves. But he was inspired to do so, he said, by the Declaration of Independence uh, statement that all men are created equal. And that was really the driving force behind Lincoln's thought that ultimately slavery should end. Now, when when he actually drafted the Emancipation Proclamation, he actually also proposed to Congress legislation that would. Uh, produced colonization. His view of colonization was that was a word used to, we ex- to take all the slaves who are freed and move them out of the country. And he actually spent a lot of time looking at places to move the slaves. Hard to believe, but that's what he did because that was, that was his view. His view was that blacks and whites couldn't live together in, uh, in, in a country. So ultimately, he agreed the Emancipation Proclamation. It probably helped win the war a bit. Um, He was criticized for not going further. And to to deal with that criticism, as soon as the war was over and as soon as he was reelected, he pushed for the 13th Amendment. He actually pushed for it to be approved in the uh, lame-duck Congress. It was approved. He was assassinated before it actually was ratified by all the states, but ultimately the 13th Amendment did what the Emancipation Proclamation didn't do. It it freed all the slaves. But if you take the Emancipation Proclamation, the Declaration of Independence, and the Magna Carta, they all embody certain freedoms, and the concept that all men are created equal is really underlying all of them. And so I think it's very appropriate that we kind of celebrate these documents because the freedoms our country has given us. Thank you very much.
0: David Rubenstein, telling the story of the Declaration of Independence at this summer's Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Rubenstein co-founded and serves as managing director of the Carlyle Group, one of the world's largest private equity firms. He also owns copies of the Magna Carta and the Declaration of Independence. This is Ideas from Aspen. From American Public Media, I'm Kai Rizdal. Another speaker at this year's Aspen Ideas Festival was Harvard psychologist Dan Gilbert. His book, Stumbling on Happiness, spent 25 weeks on the New York Times list of bestsellers. To begin his talk, Gilbert turned to the words in the Declaration of Independence.
2: The phrases, of course, that stick with me and the ideas that stick with me are the ones introduced early on, in the very first sentences, where we read that it's self-evident that people have some inalienable rights, and they are life, liberty, and then, ding, my eyes light up, the pursuit of happiness. And it occurs to me when I read this that the founding fathers thought that the pursuit of happiness was very difficult, but not particularly complicated. There was nothing very mysterious about it. There was no secret of happiness. I mean, after all, for most of human history, uh, life was nasty, short, and brutish. People got up in the morning, and they basically tried not to die. Uh, You know, food was scarce. A day of labor was long. Your children probably wouldn't live into adulthood. Everybody knew exactly what happiness was. Happiness is what happens when you get exactly what you're aiming for, and that never happens in this lifetime. Well, this theory, turns out, gets put to a test because in the blink of an eye in historical time, we undergo three revolutions, the uh, agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, the technological revolution, and all of a sudden, for the very first time in the history of our planet, large populations of people on Earth have everything they want, or at least everything they could possibly need. And guess what? They're not happy. There goes the theory. It can't be the case that happiness is just the result of getting what you are aiming for, because when people get what they're aiming for, they don't seem to be particularly happy. The conclusion is very clear. It must be that we're aiming for the wrong things. Now, How can that possibly be? Well, the answer to this question requires that you understand something very unique about human beings, one of the things that makes us an animal different from all the others with which we share the planet. Every animal learns from experience. That starts with one-celled animals all the way up. They all learn from experience, and that's good, but it's a problem because experience can be expensive, right? Trial and error is a good way to learn, but it has a cost, and the cost is error, right? Now, human beings have learned to do something different, something no other animal does, at least to the extent we do it. About two million years ago, nature decided trial and error wasn't good enough for us, and so it undertook a complete architectural overhaul of the human skull. It pushed your head forward, not to keep your hat on, but because your brain tripled in size in 2 million years. Most of this growth is centered on a particular part of the brain called the frontal lobe. So question, what does a frontal lobe do that made nature think it was so important that you have a big fat one that it actually rearranged the way your skull? Well, the frontal lobe does a lot of things, but one of the most important things it does is it lets you imagine. That's why you are able to know without actually whipping up a batch... That raw steak-banana split is not a good thing, right? The guys at Ben & Jerry's didn't make this try it and go, error. You can close your eyes and simulate the experience. Now, it's kind of cute when you're talking about ice cream, but think about this adaptation. This means that you are the only animal on the planet that learns from mistakes you never made, Should I stick my finger in the pencil sharpener? Ooh, bad idea. That is a miracle that you can actually know that without trying it. Just like pilots use flight simulators to see what it will be like to be in a plane, this part of your brain is a life simulator, and it allows you to simulate decisions before you actually take them. That's the good news. The bad news is it's new and it's still in beta testing. We have the ability to imagine, but imagination has limits. The life simulator fails, and it fails in very predictable ways. Study after study in the last two decades has shown that people make a systematic series of errors when they try to predict not what will happen in the future, but how they will feel about it. The pattern of data is very clear, and the only question is, why? Why are we so bad at looking into our own emotional futures and figuring out what will make us happy, how happy we'll be, and how long our happiness will last? Well, I think there are four answers to this question. There are four things that we fundamentally don't understand about human happiness, four things that make all of us strangers to ourselves. And what I'd like to do in my time today is tell you what they are. My talk was titled The Four Answers because I grew up in a religious tradition where we have four questions. And I always thought it would be nice to have four answers. (laughs) Today, I'm going to give you some. Point number one, I want you to use your imagination right now to imagine buying a newspaper. Okay, you all look like you're done. Yeah, okay. So what bill did you pay with? 10, 20? What paper? What day was it? What was the headline? Did you fold it, put it under your arm? Did you step backwards or forwards, turn left or right? Okay, none of you have answered this question. Did you even do what I asked? Yes, you did. You imagined buying a paper, but what you did is a hallmark of imagination, which is you imagined the central, essential feature, which is paper comes to me, and you left out all the details imagination has to leave stuff out, right? It can't take as long to imagine something as it does to do it. But what does it leave out? Well, it leaves out the inessential details. So if I say to you, imagine going to the dentist, this is the mental image you get, somebody monkeying around in your mouth. What you don't imagine, almost certainly, is parking the car or going through the new highlights for children in the the waiting room, right? (laughs) Those are the parts that seem inessential. Now... Thank you, imagination, for leaving out inessential details except, and here's the problem, inessential details matter. All the thousands of little details that you don't imagine when you imagine actually end up affecting how happy or unhappy you are. It turns out that this is a key problem in people forecasting their hedonic or emotional reactions to future events because you can improve people's accuracy of imagination simply by asking them to imagine a few of the details they left out. Here's a very simple study. Football fans are asked how they're going to feel three days after a very, very big, important game between two teams that are arch rivals. Now, one group is asked, we'll call this the narrow focus condition, they're simply asked how will you feel three days after your team wins or after your team loses. Another group of people are asked exactly this question, but they're asked to do one thing first. Before you tell me how you're going to feel three days after this game is played, tell me first the things you'll be doing. And these are students, and so they say things like, well, I guess I've got an exam between now and then. Oh, there's a cool party I'm going to go to. Uh, Oh, I've got to mow the lawn. Uh, I'm going to call my sister. The usual stuff people do in three days, all the things that imagination normally leaves out. In the narrow focus condition, we see a pattern of data we see every time we study these kinds of events, mainly that the losers overestimate how unhappy they're going to be and the winners overestimate how happy they're going to be. Hey, hello, it's a football game. It's three days later. It doesn't make a damn bit of difference. But when people are predicting, they think it'll matter. Simply asking people the question, tell me some things you'll be doing in those three days, ameliorates this error, makes people more accurate in predicting how they're going to feel three days after a football game. So here's lesson number one What we don't imagine matters more than we imagine it does. That's the essential point. Lesson number two, answer number two, I guess it's not much of a lesson. Let me talk to you for a moment about the experience of rejection, an experience nobody likes and virtually all of us have had. We've all been in the position of having others tell us, we're not going to give you what you want. We don't like you. We don't accept you. You can't be part of the fun. Now, oftentimes, rejection is ambiguous. You ask somebody for a date, they say no. Why did that happen? Could be that I'm no good, flip-flop. Could be she just is an anti-Semite, flip-flop, flip flip. Could be that I'm not handsome, flip-flop. Uh, Could be that uh, she is gay. Flip, flop, flip, right? And it's not too hard to go, Oh, you know, I I, I found the gay anti-Semite at the Ideas Festival. What was I to do? That's ambiguous rejection. But there's also unambiguous rejection. For example, when everybody turns you down for a date or something else, right, as my mother would have said, you know, they can't all be crazy. There's something wrong with you. Indeed. Okay, so here's the question. Now, if you knew that your brain could exploit ambiguity, and you do know that, you would know that if you were to come into my laboratory and I set up a situation in which you were rejected by one person or by many people, which would make you feel worse? Yes, being rejected by many people would make you feel worse than being rejected by one. Oh, you're all so smart. How come people in experiments, not too dumb people, say like, oh, Harvard students... How come they don't know this about themselves? Very simple experiment. We bring subjects into our laboratory. We create a model business, and they want a job in our model business. It involves tasting ice cream and making up funny names for it. We tell them they have to do a job interview and that they're going to be judged by, we tell half of them, by a single judge, and the other half, by a whole panel of judges. A whole panel of judges, as long as one of them likes you, you'll get the job, but if they unanimously agree you're too stupid to taste ice cream, why then you don't get the job? With me? Everybody's applying for a job, and they're getting judged by the one or by the many. We ask them to predict how they're gonna feel if they don't get the job, and then guess what we do? We don't hire any of them, we reject every one, and we measure how they really feel. Guess what? People feel much better when they are rejected by one than when they are rejected by many. But here's what they predicted. They predicted they would feel miserable no matter what. When you ask a college student, how will you feel if you don't get the job? They just go, bad, really bad. Rejection sucks. It'll hurt. What they don't do is preview that beautiful trick their brain will play. The moment they're rejected, they'll go, I didn't get the job. Well, what does one person know? Right, exactly. Flip, flop, flip, flop. The lesson in this study and in studies like it is this. We can't look ahead and see that we will rationalize, adapt, and exploit ambiguity and see the world differently later than we do now. I don't know of anybody who's ever done a systematic study of people who've been left standing at the altar, but I am willing right now to put $1,000 of my money on the the following prediction. If you ask those people to respond, was it the best day of your life or the worst day of your life, more will say it was the best day of their life. If you ask anybody about to get married, if you get left standing at the altar today, will it be the best day of your life or the worst day of your life, you will flip that result very clearly. That, my friends, is what uh, lesson number two is about. Answer number three. Here's the simplest experiment any Harvard student ever got paid five bucks to come to my lab and do. You come to the lab, you sit down, and there's a, a tray with some potato chips on it. And you are asked exactly two questions. First. Predict for me how much you're going to enjoy eating these potato chips. Second, they eat them. How much did you enjoy eating these potato chips? Third, thank you, here's your money, go home, goodbye. That is the whole experiment. Now, there's one thing we don't tell them, which is that we conduct this experiment in one of two rooms. In one room, there are some items sitting at the edge of the table that happen to all be chocolate. And if you can't remember back that far, college students like potato chips, but they consider chocolate to be the single best thing you can put in your mouth without asking permission. They love chocolate, okay? So these people are making these predictions about potato chips and eating them while there is a better food at the far end of the table. In another room, what we call the spam room... (laughs) There are, there are items at the end of the table that college students say that they hate. These are things like Spam, sardines, uh, canned salmon. Okay, so here's the question. How do these rooms that they're in affect the predictions they make and the experiences they have? Well, look how they affect the predictions dramatically. If you are asked to predict how much you like, you're going to like potato chips while you're in a Spam room, you say, oh, God, I'm going to love them. And if you're asked the same question in a chocolate room, you go, uh, oh, you know, they'll be good, but you know, not, not so much. Is that true? No. Because once you put crackly, greasy, fried, salty potato in your mouth, it doesn't matter what you're not eating, right? Once you are chewing potato chips, you like them or you don't, but you're not going, oh, man, this is so not spam. Mm, Mmm, this is really not chocolate. No, you're going potato, 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 potato. You're enjoying the experience as much as you will, and you are not making the comparison that you yourself 30 seconds before said you were going to make. It turns out that this is true in area after area of life. We think we are constantly going to be saying, if I marry her, I'll spend my whole life going, why didn't I marry her? If I buy this house, I'll always be thinking about the house I didn't buy. And the truth is, people rarely think about the things they didn't do or didn't happen to them. The point is that we are in the here and now a lot more than we realize. In the future, we're going to be living in the present. We will not be looking back so much on our past. Okay, so the last answer has nothing to do with imagination. We are the inheritors of huge amounts of cultural wisdom about happiness. Even if you didn't have a frontal lobe, you'd know the things that are supposed to make you happy because your mother would have told you. And my mom, probably like a lot of your moms, told you that there were at least three important things if you wanted to be happy. They were marriage, money, and children. Now, she didn't give me the bullet list. She said something more like, you really should find a nice girl and settle down. It wouldn't hurt if she was Jewish. You really should find a good job you like. It wouldn't hurt if you were comfortable. And you should really have children. It wouldn't hurt if it was soon. Okay, I don't know. You probably had a mother who said basically these things to you. Was my mom right about any of this, all of this, some of this? The answer, it turns out, is yes. Let me start at the beginning with marriage. It turns out marriage is an extremely good predictor of happiness. Married people are much happier than unmarried people. And by unmarried, I don't just mean not yet married, but, uh, you know, divorced, widowed, single, living together... All of those uh, uh, groups are not as happy as married people, and why should they be? Because on anything you could measure that you would think would be related to happiness, married people win. They make more money per capita. They are healthier. They eat better. They have sex more often. They enjoy it more. Yes, they enjoy it more. (laughs) So marriage, it seems, my mom was right about, does seem to be a cause of happiness, What about money? My mother wasn't particularly materialistic, but she just didn't think it would hurt to be comfortable. Was she right? Well, there's a lot of data on happiness and wealth, and there are two facts that seem very, very robust that seem to come out no matter how you measure it, and they are these. The first is the fact that economists refer to as diminishing marginal utility, which for the rest of us simply means a little money matters a lot and a lot of money matters a little. The first dollar you earn is going to make a big, big difference. The next dollar, just a little less. And by the time you are earning your millionth dollar, it's just not mattering much. Now... I told you there were two facts about money to know. The first is that a a little buys you a lot and a lot buys you a little. The second fact about money that we know is nicely illustrated by these data. Here's real income in the United States over 30 years. You all know this. Americans have gotten richer and richer in real dollars. Here's happiness over 30 years. Nada, nothing has changed. Well, it turns out it's not absolute dollars that makes people happy. It's relative dollars. It's not how much... One economist put it nicely, the best predictor of a man's happiness is not his salary, it's his salary divided by his brother-in-law's salary. Yes. It's not how much money you are making, it's how much more money you are making than other people. Relative dollars are the better predictor of happiness. What this suggests is that we are all on a treadmill. That is, every time all of us get a dollar, it makes no difference because we're in the same position. I'm running after the guy who makes just a little bit more than me, wishing for what he had. And every time I get $100,000 extra, then so does he. And damn it, I'm in the same darn place. Okay, so last, children. Well, this is an easy one, right? What do we call children? We refer to them as a bundle of joy. And if you look at the data, the data are very, very clear people with children are much less happy than people with them. Now, this is an accumulation. I want you to know this is not a study I did in my lab. We're talking about uh, Great Britain panel survey. We're talking about almost all of the data economists and sociologists have plowed through in America, Canada, Western Europe over the last 25 years In study after study, you see that either children have no effect or they have a small negative effect. I do not know of a single study showing that people with children are happier than people without them. The fourth lesson, your mother doesn't know everything. That's part of why you mispredict the future. Now, are people really hopelessly uh, naive? Are people really stupid? Of course we're not stupid. It's just that we're designed to pursue happiness. We're not designed to find it. Nature doesn't give a damn if you're happy. Nature cares if you survive and reproduce. It, it, that means that if you want happiness, you suddenly have to, you somehow have to outmaneuver the survival and reproduction machine that is the three-pound meatloaf between your ears. You have to come to understand what it is for, what it does well, and what it does badly. You have to become skeptical of the things that it tells you. I always loved this line, the comedian Emo Phillips. He said, you know, I always thought the brain was the most amazing organ in the human body. And then I thought, wait, who's telling me that? Yes, exactly. I really do think though that by understanding understanding how what happiness is, but also understanding how we predict and mispredict it, we do give ourselves the best chance of not stumbling upon uh, not stumbling on happiness, but
0: stumbling upon it. Dan Gilbert is a professor of psychology at Harvard University and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Stumbling on Happiness. He spoke at the 2009 Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. We also heard this hour from the co-founder and managing director of the Carlyle Group, David Rubenstein. Rubenstein owns one of only 17 copies of the Magna Carta still in existence, also a rare 1823 copy of the Declaration of Independence. His discussion at this year's Aspen Ideas Festival focused on those important historical documents and how they shaped our ideas about personal freedom. If you missed any part of this program, or if you'd just like to hear it again, you can download the podcast, go to the iTunes podcast section, and search for Ideas from Aspen. American Public Media's Ideas from Aspen is produced by Larissa Anderson with help from Julie Seipel and Emily Bina. Technical direction from Rob Byers, Kyle Cisco, Zach Rose, Sam Keenan, and Michael Osborne. Oversight from Peter Clowney. I'm Kai Risdahl. American Public
1: Media.